0: Alden Groves is, uh, come and read our passage, uh, which happens to be about death, too. Uh, but this one is a very special death, the death of a suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. i have asked Alden uh, to read it for us and, and comment on it as well.
1: Good morning. Turn, if you will, in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah. We're reading 53, but we'll pick up in the last few verses of uh Isaiah 52, starting verse 13. As you turn there, I wanted to share just in brief um, uh, a story with you all. Um, I grew up in this church, as, as many of you know, I think. And I was reflecting this week, as, as Pastor Mark shared, this is the passage that we were going to be reason- reading. It's this famous passage. Uh, perhaps you are well familiar with it, or, or maybe not. But I was first introduced to this, as I can remember, when I was in maybe third or fourth grade. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it was somewhere in Sunday school here. And um, there are a number of specific lessons I can remember teachers giving. Um, I can remember Bob Lyon coming to Sunday school and talking a bit about some of his own testimony and his journey and. I remember Mike Andrews coming and telling us about his relationship with his son. There are various moments that stand out to me along the way of of little stories and things that people said in Sunday school that, that just really left a mark and an impression on me. But from my various years in Sunday school here, there is only one moment I can remember where the exact words stuck in my brain forever, more than two decades now later, I'm sure, And it was when somebody, I actually can't remember who it was. I followed up with the person I thought it was, and she said, nope, that wasn't me. Um, So I don't remember who it was. If it was you, please come tell me. But a wonderful saint in our church came to the Sunday school I was in and began to tell a story of someone. I don't remember whether it was her mother or someone else close to her in her life who was um, of Jewish background. And and this woman uh, became sick, seriously ill, went to the hospital and you know, seemed like maybe could be very serious here. And a friend of hers who was a believer came and read to her from Isaiah 53, what what I'm about to read for you. And then turned and said to her, her friend on the hospital bed and said, do you know who that was about? And the woman on the hospital bed said, yes, that was about your Jesus. And the friend said, yes, but I read it from your Bible. And that was instrumental in that woman becoming a Christian. These words, whether they're familiar to you or it's the first time you're hearing them, this is the first time I can remember as a kid having somebody point out to me, do you see the richness of the gift of what's in your hand here? There are scholars who will debate who actually wrote Isaiah, how many people were involved. Not a one of them is brave enough to say it was written after Jesus. And yet do you hear the richness of this coming hundreds of years before Christ? Can you hear with fresh ears the words that I'm about to read for us this morning and remember what it would be like to be one of those who had not yet encountered Jesus maybe hundreds of years before when Isaiah prophesied this and to wonder, what is God's plan here? And can you imagine being one of those early Jewish Christians to read this again and wonder, oh my goodness, this was it the whole time. And can you picture in your minds and in your hearts the agony and the beauty of what's here? If you will, listen to Isaiah 52, picking up in verse 13 and reading all of 53. This is God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, friends, that's us, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, like Alden, I too remember... Hearing this passage, as a young believer, I was in college and uh, being amazed by it. I don't remember hearing it in church growing up, but I might have just not been paying attention. You know, today might be one of the most important days of your life. And I mean that. We're going to look at what I think is maybe the most amazing prophecy ever given into human hands. We'll do that in a few minutes. But first, you might wonder if this passage could be that amazing. Perhaps you've never heard of Isaiah 53, and you might wonder why you haven't, if it's really so compelling. I can understand that. So I thought it might be helpful to kind of follow what Alden was saying and and talk about what our Jewish neighbors and friends think about this passage. And by Jewish, let me define that. I mean, those who believe in the Old Testament, what they would call the Tanakh, but not Jesus as the Messiah. Not Isaiah 53 being fulfilled in Jesus. Well, what would they say about this? This might be useful. Well, the first thing to say is is know that this really is in the Jewish Bible, as Alden said. Even though this passage is read. Rarely. Publicly. In synagogue. And it's omitted. From the regular reading schedule. Nonetheless. It really is in the Jewish Bible. And it was written well before. Jesus walked the earth. And boy did the Dead Sea Scrolls. Make that clear. The Dead Sea Scrolls. A discovery that included multiple copies of Isaiah, written before or around the time of Christ. In fact, one of the copies of Isaiah found is called the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it just so happens that that scroll is the best preserved of all the nearly 1,000 scrolls discovered the Dead Sea. So there's no doubt here, the words of Isaiah 53 were already very old words by the time Jesus was born. The real disagreement with our Jewish friends is about interpretation. Who is this servant of the Lord? Who is this suffering servant of the Lord? Now, before Jesus lived, we just don't have much evidence Of how Jews interpreted Isaiah 53. My last class in my unfinished doctorate was at Penn. And it was on Messianism. And I remember talking about this. We don't know exactly what was thought of Isaiah 53. It must have been a strange passage to them. But after Jesus lived and died. The passage became important. Because his life did look so much like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And after Jesus' life, many Jewish rabbis agreed, and this might surprise you, that this passage was about the Messiah. A messianic interpretation. And this can be found in the Jewish Talmud, for instance. It just wasn't Jesus, they said. But around 1000 A.D., A famous rabbi taught that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was Israel, the nation itself. Israel suffers innocently. Israel, an innocent people and a holy sacrifice. Which isn't exactly what Isaiah says elsewhere. And this interpretation does make things pretty confusing. Consider verse 8, which says... For the transgression of my people, Israel, he, the servant, Israel, according to this, was stricken. So according to the transgression of my people, Israel, the servant, Israel, was stricken. In other words, if the servant is Israel, then this verse means that Israel is stricken for Israel because of Israel's sin. It's a little bit confusing. So no wonder... Why many Jewish neighbors and friends today do not take that interpretation that the suffering servant is Israel, the nation itself. So what are the alternatives? Well, there are many. Some say the suffering servant is part of Israel. Or Isaiah himself. Or King Cyrus. Or King Hezekiah. Or Josiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Moses, or Job. Or some anonymous Person in history we don't know. The truth is there's really no great. Alternative. But I want to personalize this in a way. Similar to what Alden just did. I want to tell you. A true story. Leah. Is a 25 year old Jewish woman. Who was searching for answers to spiritual questions. When faced with the question. Was Jesus. Who he claimed to be? She admitted she wanted the answer to be no. Leah said honestly, I'm starting to see that Jesus might be the Messiah, but if I accept it, I'm rejecting my father who did not believe in Jesus. I loved him more than anyone else in this world. I can't do it. She was challenged to read Isaiah 53. Leah found her dad's old faded Tanakh, Old Testament. Opening it to Isaiah 53, she made two astounding discoveries. First, the passage really did sound like it was describing Jesus. And second, her father had circled the entire chapter. And in the margin, he had written, Messianic prophecy, Yeshua is Messiah. Leah honestly didn't know who Yeshua was, but she found out, as you might know. That's a Jewish way of saying Jesus. And so it dawned on her. This was a convincing passage indeed, and even her father had not been able to, been able to dismiss it. And within two weeks, Leah acknowledged that Jesus fit the description of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This story is published by Jews for Jesus. And let me chase this with a comment. It is important to acknowledge how many Jewish friends and neighbors we have. And let me be clear. May anti-Semitism die a thousand deaths, and other forms of racism. But at the same time, we must not be afraid to highlight Isaiah 53 and the identity of Jesus as the suffering servant, fulfilling this amazing prophecy. This is really, really important. And you know, Jesus was not afraid to disagree publicly, And not, and he wasn't afraid to proclaim the truth with a bold love. And so should we. So let's open Isaiah 53. I want you to see it again. And this time with a little bit of a running commentary I'll have. I think this is one of the most important things we can do with this time. Is just to walk through it. Maybe for the first time in your life. And just to see. How this is fulfilled in Jesus. So I'll be reading parts and then just telling you how it was fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. And then we'll move to the Lord's Supper uh, communion after this. Well, as Alden read to you, it starts actually at the end of 52. So this is page 613 in your Black Bibles. Please keep them open. We'll work through this. And I'll start at verse 13 and I'm just going to read the first four verses first. And I'll tell you what these first four verses are. You ever seen a movie trailer? Maybe a movie trailer that's a teaser. That's what these first four verses are. Setting up what follows with a teaser trailer summary. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That sounds great. What a great guy, this servant. Exalted. But. As many were astonished at you. His appearance. Was so marred. Beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Something happens that he barely looks human anymore. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Listen to that. Sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been, has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let me put that in plain words my servant will do wonderful things will be exalted yet it is also true that he will be so broken and so battered that he will hardly look human now how can both of these things be true exalted and battered how can he be both triumphant and yet marred beyond recognition Well, Isaiah says, as I just read, peoples of the world will find out. They won't understand it first. But once they realize, they will be amazed as they realize this was the powerful arm of the Lord working. And there's the trailer, the setup. And Now Isaiah goes to the beginning of the story. Verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Again, in plain words. The servant's life is so ordinary in its beginnings. He was poor. He didn't even have special looks. Isn't that amazing? The New Testament never comments on what Jesus looked like. Nothing special. How unspecial? Remember the words from Nathaniel? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A town almost forgotten to history. Those are his origins. But it gets worse. Next verse. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. And as Matthew says. In chapter 27. And those who passed by Jesus heaped abuse on him, shaking their heads. Into the scene at the end, shaking their heads. You're getting what you deserved. John actually starts off his gospel on that theme. John 1, do you remember this? He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet... The world did not know him. He, Jesus, came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And it gets worse. Verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's a good man. Yet. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. See, the old word smote there, struck and afflicted. In other words, surely God is against him. Surely God has struck him to allow this. I mean, he talks about God as his father. No one really quite did that like Jesus. His intimate father. Father. And he said he was the Messiah. He went around talking about God, God, God. And then God didn't save him. So surely he was struck by God was the conclusion. Even though he bore our sorrows, carried our griefs. Which does have something to do with his healing ministry. And his empathy. But for him to have this kind of end, surely God is against him. There's a verse in the Jewish Bible, in what we would call Deuteronomy. that says, a hanged man is cursed by God. That is not hanged with a noose, but hanged on a tree. And you see that in the book of Joshua. Kings of the promised land, pagan kings, are hung on a tree. sign of being cursed by God. Can you imagine how they saw the cross when Romans... Perfected crucifixion. Someone cursed by God. Hung on a tree. He was taunted. He saved others. But he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants him. Matthew 27. 42-43. In other words. We thought the Lord struck him. Verses five and six. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all have wandered like fools, Isaiah says. Like willful, stupid sheep who think they know better than the shepherd. No wonder Jesus put it in his own words. No one is good except God alone. But a, a tragic killing, and this is a killing as we'll see, of a righteous person might cause God's judgment to come upon Israel. But instead we see something, and I just read it, something amazing about, no, this death leads to our Healing. And Peter will quote Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2. How is this? That this tragic death is our healing. And Peter says, I'll tell you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter quoting this. Verse seven. You know, want to know more about the character, the demeanor of the suffering servant? Verse seven. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you remember Pilate questioning Jesus? From Mark 15. Have you no answer? Look how many charges they are bringing against you. But to Pilate's amazement. Jesus made no further reply. To his amazement. Because anyone else. Would respond. Being that close. To execution. Anyone else would respond with. Arguing. Arguing. Or begging, or cursing, or weeping. And Jesus has this resolve, this quiet confidence, knowing his calling. And Pilate was amazed. Verses 8 and 9. By oppression, oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made a grave, made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. What does that mean? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. No deceit in his mouth. Jesus asking at his trial, what what did I do wrong? Pilate understanding. What? What sin? What evil has he committed? He said to the crowd understanding there's an innocence to this man. And yet it's true. He was made his made his grave with the wicked crack crucified between two robbers or worse And his body would have been thrown, a crucifixion victim, into an open grave, maybe eaten by wild dogs. And yet somehow this says, with a rich man in his death. And so scripture says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. Do you remember this? Named Joseph. Who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and he gets a rich man's burial, even though crucified. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? When his soul makes an offering for sin. That's what it was, an offering for sin. And here comes the resurrection. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And there you see it. He will have his days prolonged and he'll see his offspring. Who is his offspring? His disciples, who he had trained up, who he'd called family, my mothers and brothers. And Scripture tells us how he not just rose from the dead, the Lord prolonged his days, but he saw his disciples. We'll get to this passage on Easter Day, where Paul tells you the most important things. What are the most important things in our faith? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. For I told you what was first importance, first importance, the most important things, which I also received. What's the first important things, he says, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, scriptures like Isaiah 53. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, Peter. Peter. Then to the twelve, his offspring. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Again, resurrection. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. Listen. Make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This death. Means many. Will be counted. Righteous. We use the word justification. Paul does. New Testament. The many will be counted righteous. Because of this righteous man. Dying. Second Corinthians 521. Is such a great verse on this. For he God made. Christ, who knew no sin, knew no sin, innocent lamb, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Justified. Isn't that crazy? That one man's death could make us righteous, clean, without shame, in God's sight. Verse 12 is the recap. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He will own all things and share it with his people. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. For the transgressors. Notice that last phrase. That's what it was all about. Making intercession. For sinners. That's what he was doing. Interceding on our behalf. Well as we turn to the Lord's Supper. I just want to take two more minutes here. To think about. Verse 10 and verse 4. Verse. This death. Where is God in it? Where is God in this tragic death of an innocent person? And we have two incorrect answers that are so tempting. One incorrect answer is, welcome to the real world. This is what happens. Innocent people sometimes get killed. Kind of a hopeless, godless answer. The second incorrect answer is what you saw in verse 4. We thought he was stricken by God. He went around talking about God as his father, Messiah. So clearly, if God did not save him, like he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and others, he must not be the real deal. But the real answer is shocking. Verse 10. Who has believed it? Whose mouths are shut? When they realized the truth, verse 10, it was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. Not because he was a bad guy, struck down by God, but because he was a guilt offering. All that stuff in the Old Testament, rivers of blood of sheep and goats. What's it about? To point to this, an innocent one who really can make atonement. Who really can't do something that makes us righteous in God's sight, believe it or not. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. The arm of the Lord revealed in power this kind of power. To lay down one's power. And to suffer at the hand of Sinners. As we go to the Lord's table, think about this when we say, This is my body broken for you. And the Lord also said, This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins to make you righteous. This was predicted so long ago in a prophecy that they didn't know what to do with before Jesus. And then it happened. And one by one, everything here was fulfilled. And Jesus, in command of the situation, knowing what was going to happen, instituted this supper that we might remember and have it sink into our bodies and our minds what his body and blood were all about. So let us do that now. Will the elders please come forward? And as they're coming forward, will you join with me in prayer to prepare our hearts and minds? Lord, it is the greatest news we will ever hear that it was your will to cause Jesus to suffer. As much as that shakes us to the core, confuses us, shuts our mouths, it's, it's unbelievable. But it was a sign of your love for us, your heart for sinners, to go this far. And so, Lord, as we go to the table, will you make this ever real to our souls and our hearts? Amen.